Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here at Seabus Super, over the next three years, we're investing $1 billion into Seabus property. Building high-quality, sustainable developments around Australia. And creating healthy, long-term investments for members like me to enjoy in retirement. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, go to seabussuper.com.au for a PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself And there's some stories I can tell you this is the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. We have a interview to present this week, which is one that we've been looking forward to recording for a long time. And indeed, I'm sat in the seat of where Eleanor Aldroyd spoke to us just a moment ago. We swapped positions. So if you're watching on YouTube, you might uh, wonder why it's <laughs> odd that you're seeing my left cheek now and my right cheek later. But that's, uh, that's the reason for that. But Jeff, before getting to Ellie... It's because Adam always turns the other cheek. He does. If a man strikes him on one cheek, he turns his other cheek to him and lets him strike him there also. You have no idea how accurate that is. Uh, but the interview component of this show, which was going to be up the front, we're going to put it at the back because in the last couple of hours, Jeff, there have been a number of developments uh, in India with the IPL. Of course, we covered these uh, issues exhaustively last week, be it through our conversation with Glenn Maxwell, our conversation with Karinia Keshav. But the IPL, as we conceived of it a, a week ago, is no longer... As we know it, yeah, the the official language is that it's been suspended or postponed, as tends to be the language for these things. But as best we can tell at the moment, look, we're recording this on Tuesday. It'll come out on Wednesday, by which time a lot of things could have changed. So we're not even going to try to, you know, make this a, a news kind of episode because the story will change. But as far as we know, overseas players are likely to go home. Uh, local players are likely to return to their homes. Uh, and, you know, there'd be concerns about that for a, a fair few people, I imagine, who you know, may be more secure in the bubble that they were in. But the IPL bubble was breached. Um, a number of players and uh, team staff members tested positive for COVID and it's become untenable with four different teams at the moment implicated in that uh, to continue. Yeah, and, and it felt, Jeff, and we, we had this conversation last week, as I say, but once it was breached in one part, that it was almost inevitable that the other positive cases would follow suit and that's been the, the steady trickle of news today so yesterday it was about uh, one game being postponed and now it's an indefinite uh, suspension of the competition as other clubs have had to record their positive cases. 
yeah, coastal erosion kind of stuff. It, it all fell pretty quickly once it started falling. So two KKR players testing positive on the Monday um, in Sandeep Warrior and Varun Chakravarti. That team was in isolation. KKR's game for the Monday was postponed. Then two Chennai Super Kings staff tested positive. CSK was supposed to play on Wednesday. That game was postponed. And then Ritam and Saha from Sunrisers Hyderabad as well. So that meant the uh, Sunrisers game, which was supposed to be on the Tuesday, was postponed. So you had three games in a row that were all gone. And the Delhi Capitals were already in isolation because they'd played Kolkata. And then they had Amit Mishra test positive as well. So, you know, four different teams all caught up in that. So the BCCI were already looking at moving the whole show to Mumbai where there's three available grounds and they can sort of stitch the whole thing together. That seems to be where this might be moving if they do try and kick this back off again maybe next week. I mean, it seems so difficult to make predictions at this stage, but if they're going to have another crack at this, I can't see how it would be requiring further travel. I I think it's unlikely that that'll happen in the short term, given that there's such a, a... a crush for Indian national players who need to go to England to play the World Test Championship final. The, the overseas players are likely to be getting out as soon as possible, uh, except for the Australian players who aren't allowed to come back to Australia at the time that we're recording, which seems pretty absurd that that's the case. But the, the statement that the IPL, that the BCCI put out, said that it's imperative that the tournament is now suspended and everyone goes back to their families and loved ones. So that would suggest that it's more likely to be a, you know, a postponement that might be resumed in a matter of months rather than a matter of days or weeks. Yeah, and this was always the, always the, the chance that if the bubble ended up uh, falling apart as it has, that once you're out of it, you can't get back into it for, for the obvious reasons and... I mean, so many layers to this, isn't there? The political side of it, the fact that the BCCI essentially saved the summer in Australia, the fact that the ECB are anticipating that the Indian team will will do likewise this year for the five test matches and and white ball games they'll play in the UK through the middle part of the summer. That can't be divorced from all of this, can it? That these boards have been... have been essential to keeping each other afloat, the big three, that is, or at least allegedly keeping yeah. each other afloat through this tough time. And now the CA and, and the ECV and every other board as well, don't get me wrong, have to make decisions with that. Uh, it won't be at the back of their mind. They will know that they can't avoid disrupting the peace at this really crucial period of time. Whether that's right or wrong, uh, I'm sure that'll be the reality. Well, none of the other boards wanted to be the the instigator in pulling their players out of the IPL, but they'll probably be pretty relieved that they now can do that but it 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 didn't seem crazy to me to try to keep the league going as long as the bubble was intact like that seemed like there there wasn't that much downside to it like you might as well while it was working see if you could make it keep working because the players who were there were already there you couldn't magic them home you know they were already in that situation the thing that did seem crazy was continuing to move cities you know trying to stick to that plan of having the the sort of roaming circus you know on the road rather than getting all of the eight teams to one place and uh, you know and preferably a a, a smaller quieter sort of city rather than it, it did seem like madness to be taking teams and matches to Delhi for instance given just how badly Delhi's been absolutely smashed by COVID at the moment that um that was 
that seemed to be inviting trouble and, and that's what's happened with it having got into that bubble in Delhi. A lot of attention on the Australian response and we touched on this with Glenn Maxwell last week about the travel ban. I think it had been issued three or four hours before we uh, caught up with Glenn and uh, he explained his position and the position, I, I suppose, of, of the players at large, uh, of course, in coordination with the Australian Cricketers Association when they made their commentary last week too. But this travel ban does complicate matters considerably. It means that the idea of just getting the Australian players home, that's not possible. So they're now in a situation where they could stick around in India. We don't know what the the situation would be on, on that front, given there'll be no more bubble as such. Maybe they can go to a third party. Maxi hinted towards that with us uh, last week about maybe they could get on the, uh, on the on the charter that will eventually come to the UK with the Indian players, the English players and the New Zealand players ahead of the, the test matches here through June and July. That picked up a little bit of coverage at the time because like, oh, that's quite a creative solution. But now that there's no competition uh, through the end of May, I suppose they'll, they'll be waiting to take their cues from, from other countries as to what they can do in the short term instead of being stuck in this COVID hotspot. Yeah, very much so. So it's, it's the 4th of May the date when the the competition's been called off the australian border in theory doesn't open again or can't open until may the 16th you know but that ban might be extended as well so they're stuck in that situation with the way things are at the moment unless the australian government backs down on that border ban then they could be in india for another nine days then you would imagine that the bcci would do whatever it could to look after foreign players who are still there if that's required but yeah it's a it's a matter of whether whether they try to get out to the UK whether they try to get out to you know somewhere like Qatar or an intermediate spot um, there are various countries that have closed the borders to India and and it's just this insane uh, sort of this cowardice from the Australian government that they haven't bothered setting up adequate quarantine facilities, which means that people who were given government approval to leave the country are being blocked by the same government from re-entering the country. And I've seen some, you know, some absolute ludicrous nonsense, so things like some of the replies to, you know, Michael Slater hopping on Twitter and having a crack at the Australian government. I think it's the first time he's tweeted in about three years. Um, having a look at that account, it doesn't get much of a run. But the number of people replying saying, oh, you just went there for the money... Yeah, people work overseas, dickhead. A lot of people have jobs that require them to travel and that's how they make a living. And if they apply to the government to be given an exemption to leave the country and the government says you can do that, then it, it's not a, a reasonable thing to expect that as a citizen of a country you will be blocked from returning to your own country. That's not a thing that is supposed to happen. That's not a thing you're supposed to have to consider. And the idea that, oh, well, you knew what you knew the risks you were taking. The situation in India a couple of months ago looked pretty good you know there there was COVID but this wave came up fast and by the time it got really bad people were stuck there so it's just seemed absolutely bizarre that there's this kind of antagonism towards people saying we should be allowed to return to our own country in one way or another. Yeah so, so we addressed some of this with Glenn last week but the Michael Slater critique was a lot sharper I suppose saying the PM had, has blood on his hands was going to throw it into the, well, potentially into the political it does, realm. Because people People in India uh, where there's no medical support will die if they catch COVID. Yeah. You know, the Australian citizens will die if they catch it because they won't be able to access medical support. Like that's That just will happen. Yeah, and, and it underlined that really important point you made, Jeff, that they've been permitted an exemption to leave the country by the federal government, not by the state government who, who have been running uh, quarantines on the federal government's behalf for 
have many months it's been now, the fact that there haven't been federal quarantine facilities, it's really exposed that failure, which isn't about cricket, it's about the community. But we're now in a situation where the cricketers are kind of amongst those who are who are in the toughest spots. I mean, it, it reinforced that Adam Zamper and Kane Richardson made a pretty good decision uh, last week, although they were maligned for it, um, the criticism that they snuck through the back door and the relationship between that conversation and the Prime Minister coming out and issuing the travel ban almost immediately. It's impossible to divorce those two stories. And then Paul Rifle, who was 10 minutes away from leaving the bubble, the umpire who used to play for Australia but now working uh, in the IPL, uh, had he left the bubble... He would have been in all sorts. He would have been quite exposed, but instead he stayed put, didn't get out, and and so be it. And yeah, Michael Slater, I suppose, is the most recent, the most recent example of someone who's gotten out of India, but now obviously won't be able to get back to Australia for, well, really, who knows? He's in the Maldives, where it's not as though that's free of COVID. Yeah, exactly that. Um, so in theory, he'd be allowed entry from there after two weeks have elapsed, and you know, so he'll be okay. It's it's not a it's not that drastic a situation but if you're thinking about the people without the resources yes um, that the cricketers have access to without bcci support and so on who who are in a place where if they're in cities particularly where the hospitals are full and supplies are being exhausted then they're in a very dangerous spot as are all of the citizens of india obviously you know there's uh, there are millions of people at risk but just looking at this through the lens of an australian government needing to look after Australian citizens, that is something that a, a national government is for. It's not to say that they have to put on RAAF planes and fly no. over and bail everybody out. And, 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 the, and the ACA and CA are saying that, but sorry to jump in, but it's, it's worth repeating. Nobody is suggesting that. Nobody is suggesting that mm. Australian cricketers should jump some metaphorical queue. So, you know, again, it, it's easy to, to whack the players and whack the people associated with the IPL for participating in a league where they could make a lot of money. And that is the case for some of them, sure, like Pat Cummins and Glenn and others who went for huge auction mm. prices. But it's not the case for everybody who's over there. And, uh, no. and, but even that's... Yeah, I'm, I'm, tipping that, I'm tipping that Ben Cutting's not making huge money over there. Of course not. Or, you know, uh, like there are, there are a bunch of players who get picked up for their base price or, or you know, maybe they get picked up for... A hundred grand, and and it looks pretty good. But half of that goes, you know, twenty percent of it goes to CA, ten percent of it goes to their agent, you know, thirty percent of it goes on tax, and and they end up making a few tens of thousands of dollars. And yeah, it's a good payday, but it's not a life changing payday, and it's not a, a you can afford to charter a private jet home payday. Yeah, that, that's right. So there's the the chartering a jet home uh, story, which. Again, we, we talked about this last week, but the suggestion that Cricket Australia might try and do something like that, look, that might happen, who knows? But it certainly won't be happening before the 15th or 16th of May. That's the important point here. It's not as though they're going to be airlifting them out of Hanoi sort of style um, situation. This is, not, mm. this is not what we're talking about here. So I hope there, there is some... There is some uh, a degree of uh, measured reporting on that from those who are sort of seemingly outside of the cricket landscape because it is easy to beat up on, on wealthy cricketers. I totally get that. But that's not what this is about, and hopefully that was made pretty clear by Glenn last week. Pat Cummins is one of those wealthy Australian cricketers who uh, is using his muscle for good. Uh, in, in, we, we talked about his pledge of $50,000 last week, which was the catalyst for a number of other players uh, doing the same. And Cricket Australia starting their fund with UNICEF. I think they've chipped in fifty grand to kick it off. And Cummins himself, Jeff, and you were all over this last week, decided to send it to UNICEF as well instead of the PM Cares Fund in India, which had hairs all over it. Yeah, there, there was a, a fund closely tied to the, to the Indian Prime Minister Modi, where there wasn't any 
transparency on what that money was being spent on and, and that that strangeness of getting donations to a fund that has a politician's name on it as though he's the one giving the money out, you know, it just doesn't doesn't um, doesn't smell right. Uh, none of that did. So uh, I think a, a number of people communicated with Pat Cummins about that and he's decided to be more politically neutral, I suppose, on where that money goes and, and have it go through UNICEF instead. So he does his best to, to, to do the right thing most of the time, Pat Cummins. He's a, an admirable human being. In theory, when the Australian players return, uh, Jeff, they'll be home for 14 days of quarantine at some stage, and then they will have to regroup and, and go off again uh, to the West Indies, potentially Bangladesh for white ball tours, and then a number of them to the UK for the 100. I mean, it, it, I suppose the events of the last week have reinforced how tricky this is going to be uh, and how nimble they're going to have to be uh, and how much time away from their family uh, this is really going to mean in 2021. And look, we were talking to Marcus Stoinis about this in January, but now that we know, well, we know what we know uh, about India and, and the situation over there, uh, it, it'll feel quite daunting for a number of those players without any clarity, complete uncertainty, I suppose, about the next few months in their lives. And the indications from Cricket Australia are that they will take that into account. Notionally, the IPL happens in players' free time, like that's their leave period and they can choose to go and make money in the IPL if they want. But you've got to be realistic that it's probably been quite a harrowing experience in, in its own way. Yeah. You know, nothing compared to what's going on outside the luxury hotels, of course, and, and nothing compared to what's going on in the hospital wards and all of the rest of it, but still having that anxiety, living with that anxiety um, of of seeing, you know, the, the world burn outside your window really is is going to have had an effect. So they, they may be sensible with selections and so on in giving a break to some players who might have been on that trip in, in ordinary times. It probably doesn't matter too much what the makeup of those squads will be, I suppose, mm. uh, because it, it it's, it's probably not sustainable for players to come home for such a short period of time and then go off again immediately and 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 there are issues with that west indies tour as well where there's a there's been a volcanic explosion in st vincent you know just to just to follow on from 2020 being a great year um 2021's just doing the business as well which means they might not be able to land planes so, so they may have to change where those matches are being played and so on yeah and i suppose they're discharging, they're fulfilling their commitments to the, the uh, World Cup Super League there, but they're also preparing for the, the T20 World Cup in October. It almost seems trite to talk about the suitability for India to host a global tournament right now. Yeah. But we've seen briefed out during the week, Jeff, from those close to the BCCI that their preferred venue, if they can't host it, will be the UAE. But this struck me, this jarred with me. Why is it mm. up to the BCCI to influence where a subsequent tournament might be held. Surely that's the responsibility of the ICC and they can make a call and maybe it ends up in, in Dubai anyway. That that would be logical, I suppose, if they're starting again with a blank mm. piece of paper. But but still, I mean, the sense that the BCCI have been putting in place contingency plans with the UAE, that doesn't feel quite mm. right to me. Yeah, it's odd that that's where the, the information's coming from, um, but maybe that's just the journalists have leakier sources in one organisation than the other. It does puzzle me what benefit there could be for India to host that tournament. The, the, the one thing that the home board gets out of it is the gate receipts and, you know, the corporate hospitality 
boxes and all of that. That's how they make money out of a, an ICC global event because all the broadcast revenue goes to the ICC. So what benefit there could be staging the thing in the UAE rather than, you know, putting it off for a year and trying to stage it with crowds in? Um, I, I can't see that, but I'm, I'm sure they have their own ideas. A lot's going to change in this story uh, in the next 24, 48, 72 hours and beyond. So we probably should just move off this topic because we could keep talking all day mm. about it and, and some of it will be relevant when this is published, some of it probably won't. But I suppose our intention of, of trying to steer clear of the IPL this week it would have been disingenuous for us to have immediately jumped into uh, that aforementioned interview, which is going to be great uh, with Ellie Aldroyd. Well, how, how can you describe Ellie? Uh, we'll, we'll give it a crack uh, later when we go into the interview, but one of the most influential voices mm-hmm. in English journalism, specifically in cricket. So we've really enjoyed chatting to her. Before getting to that, there have been a couple of test matches uh, played in the last week. Uh, one of those was in Harare between Zimbabwe and Pakistan. I don't propose that we talk about that today in depth. We might come back to it after they finish their second test during the week but it was all over mm. in three days Pakistan thumped Zimbabwe Fawad Alam made a century and Hassan Ali took nine wickets I do want to note though that Fawad Alam now has 400s and no 50s so he's oh, got good. to 54 times <laughs> and then has gone on to 100 every one of those times and uh, you know you, you know I love a player with more 100s and 50s so if imagine if that kept going imagine if imagine, imagine if he gets like 2300s and no 50s <laughs> God, it'd just be it'd be a great day I hope it's the case that when we talk about that series in depth uh, this time next week that it's 5-0 and zero or 6-0, and zero, twin tons mm. in the second test, perhaps a forward alarm. The second test at Candy, though, between uh, Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, we thought it might be another boring draw. It wasn't another boring draw because Sri Lanka won by 209 runs. Karuna Ratna, our boy, made his second century of the series in a big first innings tally of 493 for seven. Karuna Ratna won 18. Mm-hmm. Thiramana won mm-hmm. 40, so a 209 run opening stand. The other man we were talking Your about. Your favourite. <laughs> earlier this <laughs> you, year. Ever, ever since you sledged it, ever since you were like, it's hilarious that this guy still has a career, averages about 22 from 10 years of test cricket. He's just been on an absolute spree. Good on him. He's just made runs everywhere against everybody. No, I love Beautiful. it. I love it. I also love the fact that uh, Dickwella. Oh, you were right. I mean, you were dead right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Narush and Dickwella, uh, 77 not out from 72 balls, doing the team thing, but again, not quite getting uh, to three figures at test level. I think he's got about, he's the opposite of Farwood Alarm. Maybe he's got 15 test mm. half centuries now or something like that uh, without saluting for three figures and Bangladesh were all out 251 in the first innings brisk runs for Tamim Iqbal uh, again but he didn't have a huge amount of support Praveen Jai Vikrama on debut 6 for 92 uh, in the first innings with his left arm orthodox ended up taking 11 for the match when they bowled out Bangladesh for 227 the second time around Karuna Ratna made runs for Sri Lanka in their second innings when they were batting for declaration runs and all told a convincing win uh, for Sri Lanka at home they take the series 1-0 and um, I noticed after that 11 for for Jai Vikram, he there, there was a, a photo popped up with a caption something like uh, the the successor to Murali and Rangana Herath. And I was like, oh fuck off! <laughs> like no pressure. He's played one Test match. Leave him alone. Like you, you know, I mean, Herath took what 430. Two wickets? Like you can't. He's got 11. You know, leave him be. Leave him be. We had this earlier in the year as well, didn't we, when Sri Lanka bowled out England in that first test match. Like, well, we've got our replacement. We've got our spin department all sorted out. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, he's Embledenia. He's going to be the next. That's right. Embledenia was the, the, the player in era. question there. Anyway, for that reason... Praveen Jayavikrama should also win the CBUS Super Performer of the Week. I don't want to put too much pressure on him. I know it's early days. I know that, I mean, Harris didn't win it in his first after his first test match. Morelli didn't win it after his first test match. But 
Praveen Jayavikrama has done so. What's your projected total for retirement or for career wickets, I suppose? Visit cbussuper.com.au slash the final word if you want to look at our face on a superannuation website and if you want to uh, get a PDS to find out if it's right for you and if you want to remember that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. Super super. But yes, high-scoring uh, games, both of them, and Zimbabwe, Pakistan, have their second test at Harare, the Harare Sports Stadium, I think it is, uh, which begins mm-hmm. midweek, uh, and we'll talk about it next week. Uh, Jeff, before we uh, go to our break and our feature interview, it was another bonkers round uh, in the county championship. Been really blessed with four rounds of cricket where there's been very little rain. Hashtag blessed. Hashtag blessed, that's right. Very little rain uh, through April, so four rounds through that stretch of time where there's been a lot of results. So just one draw out of the nine games this week. One two-dayer, a couple finished in three, and then uh, a couple of crazy fourth-day finishes as well. Two-dayer? Yeah, there was a two-dayer. We'll come to and, and Marnus was involved in that too, I should add. But we'll start with the thriller. Okay. North Hants were one run away from tying Yorkshire. There have been 67 ties in first-class cricket, and I keep my eye on that Wikipedia page quite often. Whenever a game's getting mm. close, I'm like, maybe this could be number 68. But And that's been since 1783, I should add. So it's a, a long, a big body of work where there have only been 68 mm. instances of it. But um, yes, uh, North Hants, at one stage, they were 206 for nine, chasing 218 when the rain came. So I was watching the stream, and as Ben Sanders was walking mm. out at number 11, it started pissing it down at Headingley. Uh, and when they got back, he hit a boundary first ball, I think. He was there with... Wayne Parnell, but yes, when they are one run short, uh, when they were 216 all out, I think it worked out to be, when Steve Patterson, the Yorkshire captain, took the final wicket. So a one run result it leads to, to uh, which was the, yeah, the, the best game of the round. It was a scrap the whole way through. The two-day game you talked about, Kent were rolled for 138 and 74 against Glamorgan. Michael Hogan, the Australian who played some shield cricket about 10 years ago and turns 40 next month, he took five for 28. But the other Australian playing in that game, Marnus Labashane, Jeff, you'll love the fact that he was out to Darren Stevens' uh, leg before wicket for 11. The day before Steve-O turned 45, he went on to complete a five-wicket bag, five for 53 <laughs> on his 45th birthday. So we had final word friends on Twitter asking Andrew Sampson, who is the oldest player to take a five-wicket bag on their birthday? On oh, his birthday. There'd be heaps. There'd be heaps of old spinners. Well, well there's a 50-year-old. The 50-year-old is mm. the benchmark, so maybe we'll see Darren still kicking around in five years' time. It won't surprise you to hear that Surrey bounced back after Middlesex towed them up last week and slaughtered Hampshire by an innings and 289 runs at the Oval. But how's about this? So they bowl out Hampshire. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. Can, can, I just, can I just give you one thing here? Manus, Darren Stevens, Darren Stevens, 45. It, it wouldn't be very often that you, as a professional cricketer, got out to someone whose age was higher than your average, but he nearly did. <laughs> Marnus is averaging 46 in first-class cricket. Maybe someone can work that out at some point, like per Sam Ashworth a couple of weeks ago with the Caps. Yes, well, that, I mean, that, that game at Surrey at the Oval, uh, they bowled out Hampshire for 92, so you're thinking, oh, green top, you know, Surrey will be up against it, especially when Muhammad Abbas and, and, and Kyle Abbott as the opening bowlers. Nope, they made 560 for seven in reply, declared, and yeah. after making a pair last week, Hashim Amla, 215 retired hurt. He woke up with Shaggers back after completing his double ton and didn't continue his innings. <laughs> Ollie Pope made 131. I think Ollie Pope's average at the Oval is now 103, and his average against Hampshire is like 99 or, or something ridiculous. Bradman esque figures there from hmm. the young England Tyro. And in the second innings, Hampshire out for 179, and Kemar Roach rocks up and picks up eight for 40, the West Indian speedster. His best figures in first class cricket. 
to finish the job there. So he's a really good signing for them there at the Oval. And the other game I wanted to highlight was um, Gloucestershire, who they were a Division Two county back in 2019. They're currently being coached by the freak Ian Harvey, who had to step in at the last minute because uh, Richard Dawson's taken a role with the ECB. And he's led them to the top of the table uh, in Group 2, and they hauled down 348 on the final day against Leicestershire. That's their third successful chase this season. Ian Cobain made 117, and Tom Lace, 97. So they play uh, Middlesex at Lords this week, the game I'll be at, so looking forward to seeing them in action. Daniel Worrell, of course, playing for Gloucestershire from an Australian perspective. And as I sign off and we move on, um, Knotts won their first game for three years uh, against Derbyshire this round. Haseeb Hamid, we were talking a lot about him last week. He was out second ball of the match, just to, you know, do as they always do after you talk them up for, for four days. And But he did back up with 94 in the second innings, and, and Stuart Broad was really important in that final innings too. So he's just getting his um, the miles in the legs uh, for a new international summer. So, yes, yeah, some great results uh, in the championship and a, a fantastic month to start the season. Very good. Thank you, Adam. I know you've been excitedly watching all nine streams at the same time. And before we get to the middle part, the little breather part of the show, let's have a quick little round of no pledge. No pledge. No pledge. The game that we play with people on our patron page, they support the show by sending us small amounts of currency that are a number that relate to cricket and we have to work out what that number means. That's how it works. And the first is... Well, the only number. <laughs> the one and only. Is a double header. Yes. Yes, and that number is 210. Uh, so Matt from near the Gabba, who's been a, a regular correspondent of ours in recent times, is in with his first pledge, and MJ Noster, our, one of our Dutch correspondents. Uh, she's been with us before, but uh, because she was down the list and had the same number as Matt, she appears on the show this week. It's neat like that, your cue. There's one way to jump it, and MJ Noster has done precisely that. Matt at the Gabba, Jeff, has a clue for us. He had the pledge 219 ready to go when an unbelievable event occurred that prompted a change to 210. But since none of your four-way guesses included my 219, I'll be very excited to change my pledge after you guess my 210. Of course, 219 was the number we were looking at recently. Jeff, why would have Matt changed his number from 219 to 210 on account of an unbelievable event? In a moment of great excitement, in a fit of pleasure, Matt would have done that on the night of, oh, I can't remember when it was, maybe it was January or early February. It was during the first test match where England were playing India. It was during our live mm. our live pub show of uh, our little sort of attempted oh, yeah. watch along. And he did that because 210 was a score that Kyle Mayers made for the West Indies that night. Now, I know that because I noticed the pledge come in at the time on the day <laughs> and I thought, 210, I know what that's about. I know when that comes around in a couple of months' time, I'm going to nail this first shot. And here we go. It is It is the night that Kyle Mayers made 210 for the West Indies in one of the biggest run chases of all time. One of the most bananas test innings ever played, I think, because we know that chasing 395 runs is ridiculous in the fourth innings of a test match, doing that in Bangladesh against the home team with a bunch of spinners should be impossible. There have only been four bigger run chases in test history in 150-odd years. But for 210 of the runs to be made by a player who is on debut in the fourth innings, who hits seven sixes along the way, is beyond ridiculous. Uh, So if you didn't catch this story at the time, very briefly, the summary, Kyle Mayers was basically a bowling all-rounder, you know, bowled more than batted uh, and wasn't really in West Indies 
contention until he had one big first-class season with the bat and averaged 50-odd, and then there was a big shortage of players who didn't want to go to Bangladesh when the COVID crisis was really starting to arc up. Uh, And so Kyle Mayers was willing to go, and he got to bat at number five in the test team. This would not have happened in other circumstances, right? And then he goes on to make 210 in a run chase of 395. 210 not out, I should specify. So to give you some context, there have been 119 centuries on debut. Like that's not that rare because there are lots of players who are, you know, they're cherry ripe when they get into a test team, they're good to go and they make 100 at the first time of asking, right? So 119 tons on debut, only six of them have been double centuries. So players at the first time of asking don't tend to go on to 200. Kyle Mayers was the seventh. None of those double centuries were in the fourth innings though. Players who made a ton on debut in the fourth innings out of 119 of them, eight. Eight had done it before Kyle Mayers. And they were all small hundreds. So 105 had been made three times, 106, 109, 110, 112 and 117. Leslie Cook in a women's test had the highest score before Mayers on debut in the fourth innings. And then he comes along and makes 210, like nearly double the next best. Absolutely ridiculous. And out of those eight debut centuries in the fourth innings of a test, three of them were in lost causes, four of them were in draws, and only one of them actually came in a win, and that was about 20 years earlier when Yassir Hamid made twin tons in a match against a much, much worse Bangladesh team playing in Pakistan. So Yassir, Tip Foster and Lawrence Rowe were the only players to make more runs in a match in their first test match because Kyle Mayers made 40 in the first innings and made 250 in the test match. And this is a guy who averaged 28 in first-class cricket before that game. So what a night. And no wonder it made an impression on Matt near the Gabba. Oh, what a night. Uh, Late December back in... 63. Kyle Mayers, yeah, that's the most striking part, isn't it? Your final line. His average first class level was 28 uh, before mm-hmm. striking 210 on debut. Remarkable. Looking forward to watching his career and following it closely as we will on the final word. MJ Noster also came with a clue, so thank you, Matt. Her clue was that it is something the Netherlands have only done once in the history of cricket. I went further and said, Is it maybe the only team to beat a test team once? He said, Not really, but kind of sorta. So I was warm. And then where we got to was that uh, the Netherlands women have only played one test match, and that was against South Africa in, in 2007. Of the current lot of South African players, only a very young baby Shabnam Ismail at age 18 and Trisha Chetty, who just turned 19, were in that 11. The Netherlands did okay. They, they bowled them out for, for 232. They only made 108 in reply. And batting a second time, they set... Uh, the Netherlands 210 to win which is pretty generous when you think about it just said after being so far ahead in the game they only said well look you know you go and get 210 and you can you can have the win despite the fact they had like 140 mm. run first innings lead but anyway there wasn't much time left I reckon yeah they, they tended to play short affairs and if you wanted to win you really had to go for it had the chance to hand and it worked anyway they bowled out Netherlands for 50 <laughs> so the batting was the real problem for the Dutch they were completely trounced in the, in that fourth innings and Unfortunately, they never got the opportunity to improve because they haven't played test cricket since, but the target they had in that test was 210. That, I suspect, is going to be MJ's number. So that's Nerd Pledge. If you want to play, if you want to send us a number and have us try to work out what it means, very easy. Go to patron.com slash the final word, make an account, set a pledge, and in doing so, you can help support the show and help uh, let us put the time into it that we do week in, week out. 
All right. Thank you, Jeff. That's the end of part one. Let's take a breather. Let's talk about some satellite communication technology and return with one of our oh, yeah. favourite people in the cricketing world, Ellie Aldroyd. In the world. Just in the whole world. It's in the big world. Probably in space. Maybe in all of space. Maybe in the universe. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Jeff, improving we've recorded this episode in sequence, talking about outer space, that's where the satellites connect to from the Zolio that you can put into your pocket. Zolio, tell us about them. The most beautiful satellite communication device in the cosmos. Including the two well, black holes. And if you have ever thought, man, I wish my satellite, my, uh, my ordinary smartphone was a satellite technology device then it can be. Uh, it can be turned into one with this this helpful little box. It's called a Zolio. It's in my hand right now. It's like half the size of my hand. I have big hands, but, you know, imagine that. Imagine someone with big hands. It sits comfortably on the palm. It's like a, I don't know, like a... Like if you got a block of Mersey Valley cheese and, and someone had taken a couple of pretty generous slices off it and then gave you the rest, that's what you'd have, you know, that sort of... That sort of size. You, you, you feeling me? Yeah, well, you do have big hands. I, I was measuring mm. Winnie's feet this morning alongside my big toe, and my big toe is still bigger than her entire foot. So, you know, Winnie couldn't pick it up. Well, she could pick it up. I mean, we've recently she's been going the, the Shahid Afridi and picking up the cricket ball and sticking it in her mouth and trying to, trying to take a bite <laughs> out of it like an apple, bless her. But it wouldn't take up the whole surface size of her little hand. But still, the point remains, this is a comparatively small box to carry around with you for a mm -hmm. considerable payoff if you're in the business of staying connected in places you otherwise might not be able to. Yep, it's quite lightweight. But if you were, say, you know, trapped outside of the country uh, because your national government had barred you from re-entry, for instance, something like that, <laughs> and you were in another country uh, where you, you didn't have ready access to, you know, local SIM cards and networks and all of the rest of it, and you really needed a way to be able to send text messages or emails to someone, you could do it with this box. You could do it if you were stuck on a mountain somewhere. You can do it if you're on a raft. You can get it any old how. Matter of fact, you got, got it now. now. And, uh, and, and it shows how broken and, uh, our brains are that as soon as you started that, we both went to exactly the same place. We, of course we did. Of course we did. So it, it's a pretty basic concept, which is that you can't always connect your phone to be able to send a message in textual form or in voice form. But when you have this thing, you can send a message from anywhere on the planet to anywhere on the planet. You just turn it on and it starts talking to your smartphone and it connects to an app on your phone and then that app will let you send a message in written form to any email address or any phone number in the entire world. Done, 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 done. And it's not like, you know, it then charges you $80 for the privilege. You know, you, you just sign up with a, a per month subscription and then your messages are included and it's all fine. And it uses the geostationary satellite network no the not geostationary satellite network the one that's 800 kilometers above us and it beams your message to that thing 800 kilometers up and then down to someone else's phone or computer magic without giving anything away when, when we talk to ellie in a moment part of our conversation involves the technology she used when she was first reporting on cricket mm -hmm. uh, way back when and w yep. we talked about the sort of nostalgic idea of, of communicating not necessarily mm -hmm. abusive letters that's the downside that we reflected on about how crazies might tell you mm -hmm. how shit you were or how shit they thought you were some time mm -hmm. ago but nonetheless I, I see it this way 
so many advertisements these days are about dating apps and about how you can mm-hmm. how you can um, make your profile better to attract mm-hmm. uh, a, a, a potential life partner or or, or one night mm-hmm. partner if that's if that's your go whatever it is whatever type of partner that's you part want, of your life the apps have that that's that's a bit of your you. life well what life about doesn't have to doesn't specify how much <laughs> well what about when we were younger there, there were no there were none of this app business you had no. to send an sms there was no whatsapp there was mm. no facebook no. messenger or whatever it is dms no. didn't exist you just sent an old-fashioned bog standard sms you up question mark late mm-hmm. drink question mark I like the idea mm. that what the Zolio is doing is taking us back to our, back to the roots of, of roots mm. when it comes to mm. connecting with people late at night. Mm. Uh, look, that, that's, that's, that's my point. It, it's a nice thing. It's a throwback. Yep. Yep. I mean, look, the only flaw in your plan is that if you're far enough away that you need a Zolio, you're unlikely to be able to get to that person <laughs> in time to make anything of the opportunity. The plus you can side, it up. though, is that if you're... If you're somewhere far enough away to need a Zolio, you are going to seem more interesting, much more interesting to that person. <laughs> you're not just texting them from Clapham Common, you know, or Dandenong or whatever. You're texting them. You're like, oh, just texting you with my satellite phone because, you know, I'm on one of the Andes and there's no reception here. And that A, makes you seem interesting and B, makes it seem like more of a commitment to that person that you have sent them a message with this that's what really, really sends the thrill because they're like, wow, they went to all the trouble of sending me a message using a satellite phone network. In the old days, if you wanted something to go 800 kilometres up into space, you had to take it yourself. You had to pack a lunch and you had to get up there. But now you can just send it with one of these boxes. So, Zolio, Z-O-L-E-O.com. That's the thing. Check it out. Hi, my name's Kate Cross and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. This is The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, and we move to an interview that we've been hoping to do for a number of years. Someone who has truly done it all in sports broadcasting in the UK and around the world. Uh, These days, the leading cricket voice for Five Live, more Olympic games than hot dinners, and one of the most well-loved voices in cricket as well on the BBC, Eleanor Aldroyd. Welcome at long last to The Final Word. Well, I feel like I've been waiting years for the invite, to be honest, Adam, as you know that... Um, uh, hi, Jeff, as well. I, I, as you both know, I'm a huge listener to The, the Final Word, and um, you kind of accompanied me, accompanied me on some very long journeys recently, so I just feel like I've, you know, been in your very lovely company on many occasions in the last couple of years, and you've actually... Say, say this, you know, let's get the soppy stuff out of the way right up. You've actually cheered me up in some dark times in the last year as well so thank you both for that and thank you for inviting me on thank you ellie i feel like as i say we've wanted to do this for a while and the way that you've relayed to jeff and i taking us on these journeys uh, having your two daughters at university of course through covid spent a lot of driving around to make sure that you get to spend some time with them and it's kind of nice that we've been a lot of the time uh, riding shotgun with you in the passenger seat well i mean some podcasts just don't cut the mustard timing wise <laughs> so you have to keep, kind of keep changing um from one to the other but you know a nice one hour 47 <laughs> minutes and i think yep. yep that's great that'll get me to the next service station with no problem whatsoever and i've got time to fit in a story time too you were the first woman to be involved in test match special in that summer of 2000 and i, and I want to get to all of that and we will and there's a lot of sort of serious issues that we'll take on in, in this interview as well but to start it's been a crazy couple of weeks for you when prince philip died 
my instinct was to text you immediately because I knew you had a pretty big week and a half ahead of you as the solo broadcaster permitted to enter the cathedral to essentially give ball-by-ball commentary on the royal funeral in much the same way that you did the same at uh, the royal wedding uh, back in 2018. Try and somehow explain to us how it turns out that with your sports background, you end up uh, in the cathedral doing your thing with, well, I suppose your person 31, 30 people permitted in the funeral and you're the other person in that ceremony. Yeah, I think it feels to some people like quite a weird thing to imagine that somebody who is essentially a sports broadcaster um, has this key role at the heart of a major royal occasion. But actually, it's something that's hap- that happened decades ago i mean you think back to brian Brian johnson and he commentated on royal events because i suppose you take sports broadcasters and they can react to things around in the way that news journalists perhaps can't because you've got to be able to paint a picture you've got to be able to describe a scene and you've got to be able to convey a feeling as well so when it comes to a major live broadcast event actually sports people do this all the time you know they're doing it every week so in fact our producer in the studio was one of our top sports producers graham who is used to directing things like the Ryder cup and major football afternoons on on radio five live on our sports network so he is used to being able to go from one thing to another seamlessly and not panic about things that might happen out of out of the ordinary and actually when it comes to being in the chapel you you know things will pretty much you hope run as you imagine they're going to so you get the order of service beforehand and there are very precise timing points in a funeral service as anybody who's been to a funeral knows and you've got hymns you've got might have an anthem you've got prayers you've got readings and so the time that you have to speak in between those points is very precise. But at the same time, you might get an unexpected gap. So at the start, we knew that the procession from the west steps of St George's Chapel to the point where the choir was going to start singing was going to be 1 minute and 48 seconds. So you can pretty much plan what you're going to say in that time. Mm. And you try, you time it, and we actually rehearsed it a couple of times, and you ran through. So you have a script. So basically, unlike any other form of sports commentary, you have a script, more or less. But you've still got to be able to feel it as well, and you've got to be able to get the tone right to feel it. And you have to be able to describe things. So if, for example, it had taken longer than they planned to to move the coffin to the position in front of the high altar. I had in my head things that I could describe in the chapel. So the dark wood Gothic choir stalls, the garter banners hanging above the chapel itself, the light shining through the stained glass windows. You know, you have to be able to have in your mind those things that you might have to say if your script doesn't fill in time. And so is the idea, Ellie, that a news reporter is more focused on facts and they're only supposed to be bringing information and a a sports broadcaster has to be able to put across some of the emotion of a moment as well or or the the significance on a human level rather than just a factual level. Yeah, I think, and and facts are a very important part of it and we get very large briefing packs beforehand. So, and I think actually think back to the the funeral of Princess Diana, which was the first major royal occasion that, that I did. And on that day, I haven't—I don't think I've ever been so nervous in my life, you know, before or since. It was really 
ex- well, it was an extraordinary moment. It was an extraordinary moment of emotion, but also just that feeling that you've got to get it right. You know, you know that there are people listening across the country, across the world. So for this latest royal funeral, we were broadcasting on Radio 5 Live, on Radio 4, so the big speech network on World Service, across local radio, you know, the EBU, the European Broadcasting Union, were taking a feed Mm. of it. So I knew beforehand that an awful lot of people are going to be listening to it. And you cannot mess up because the eyes of the the world are on the BBC at that point as well. So on the day of of Princess Diana's funeral, I had facts in my head and I had flashcards, I had things written down, so I knew that I could describe the route that the coffin was going to take. So I was on the processional route that day. So it was the point where the, the coffin and the procession came out of Kensington Palace. And there's a private road which goes down from Kensington Palace and then it joins Kensington Gore through the centre of London and, you know, and, and past the, the Royal Albert Hall. And the streets were packed with people. So I was in the crowd. So I knew what I was going to say. I had in my mind the words I was going to say. But at the point that the coffin came into the view of people for the first time, there was this <gasps> gasp of emotion. There was this audible feeling of, oh, my God, this is real. You know, the first sight of the coffin, do you remember the, the wreath of white flowers on the yeah, top, yeah. the card saying mummy from her sons, you know, the princes walking behind. And somewhere in the crowd, a woman just kind of wailed. And it was one of the most haunting things I think I've ever heard. So you've got, you can't just stick to, you, to what you think you're going to say at that point. You've got to be able to say the emotion is starting to really get to people. But it's like being at any sporting event. So it's like what, what, what we all do in our day jobs. You know, you want to be able to convey the feeling of the crowd. You know, if somebody had said to you, how will it feel on the day of the World Cup final at Lords? ahead of that super over you know none of us knew what that was going to feel like so you've got to be able to be in, in possession of the facts you've got to be able to breathe control your nerves control the sense that this is a pretty big deal and and at the same time convey a picture and a scene at that moment yeah so there is that comparison to a major sporting moment and not to sort of uh, conflate uh, death with sport or anything like that but Uh, in the case of nailing a big moment like a a World Cup final or a a test match with a a close conclusion or something like that. So in some respects, you've been preparing for this moment for an entire career. Well, yeah. I mean, it's 30 years since I started working in live national sports broadcasting. And, And I remember actually the day of the Royal Wedding thinking, actually, this is... Because it was a big deal. I mean, it was it was a huge deal at the time for me to be able to be the first you know, the only person inside St George's Chapel for the royal wedding and then for the royal funeral, but also the first woman to have that role mm. inside the chapel, or, you know, to, to be part of the service, to be the voice of the service. And, and because it's the, it's the solemnity of it is, is the big thing as well, because on a procession, it's, it's, it's the, you know, it's the pageantry, it's the colour, and then, um, you know, in, in the chapel, it's the service itself. Ali, how do you get the gig as the royal correspondent? I mean, that it's, it doesn't seem to be a natural flow on from doing sports commentary to being on call for all of those big events. How did it happen in the first place? Well, I think it's a very good question. I've no idea. You know, you kind of need to ask ask the, the management really. But I suppose you know, you think that the royal, the Princess Diana's funeral was nineteen ninety seven. So at that stage, I was relatively young and relatively new to to national broadcasting. But I think they wanted to convey at that point the, the, the feeling that she was, you know, she was a young woman. 
you know, so the voices around the funeral were going to be people who were similar sort of age at, at that point and you know mixture of male and female voices so the traditional you know the the, the richard dimbleby way of doing it over the years which is which is all male and it, and i'm i'm not sure about this but i'm guessing that actually that first royal funeral had the the best mix that we'd ever had of male and female voices and obviously i didn't i didn't make a complete mess of it on that occasion so I then I then got asked back so the next next one I think was the funeral of the Queen Mother in 2002 and then followed by a little bit of a spate of royal weddings so Charles and Camilla Catherine and William and then and then Meghan and Harry so actually and, and once you've done it once you've it's it's, it's about experience you know it's about experience it's about knowing that you can you can do it on on that moment and and I think you know that that feeling that Actually, I have done it long enough now that I know what's going to happen. I, I mean, I suppose at the time I was doing I was doing sport, but I was doing news as well. So I, I kind of had that crossover between. And actually, in fact, I had been broadcasting on the day that she died because it was a Sunday and I was used to do a sports programme that afternoon. That was my kind of gig at the time was Sunday afternoon, Five Live Sport. And in the end, we didn't do a sports programme. We did a news programme. So I ended up on the, you know, because all the BBC networks came together. So part of that rolling news programme on that Sunday afternoon. And that was when the, the plane brought her back from Paris. And, you know, and I just remember describing the scene as the plane landed, you know, at the airfield. And again, that sense of nobody can quite, com- you know, compute here what's happened. So, so I was, maybe, maybe I'd pass the audition at that point. So that's the here and now, Ellie. But as you know, with these final word interviews, we like to go back to the very, very start of our subject's uh, life in cricket. And, and yours is, goes all the way back to uh, being a teenager at school, uh, carrying around wisdoms and developing scrapbooks with what you cut out of the newspaper and, and all the rest of it. And I mean, I know we, we reflected on uh, your professional background as to why you were in the church a couple of weeks ago, but also there's this strong presence from your father which uh, informs, uh, I suppose, your, your understanding of the religious side of things, but also your deep love of cricket from the outset. Mm. Yeah, actually, I suppose you could link that back to the, the, the royal funeral and knowing what it's like, what a church service looks like and sounds like and feels like. And, and yeah, that was being dragged to church yeah, I say dragged to church because we we went, did not go particularly willingly, my brothers and I, when we were small. But yeah, my dad was a vicar in um, in, in sort of the Welsh borders, really. So Shropshire, Herefordshire, you know, beautiful counties mm. with no first class cricket. So we used to go to Worcestershire quite a bit. But also, my grandparents lived in Kent, and so we actually did used to go to Canterbury quite a bit, and you know, Tunbridge Wells and and Maidstone and all, all the outgrounds at, at the time when we used to go and stay with my grandparents down in in Margate and on the coast but my dad was a massive cricket fan and my mum was a big cricket fan as well and she actually as a schoolgirl, went to see Compton and Edridge playing at Lords oh, after the war oh, so what a time I know I yeah. know exactly kind of from 19, 1946 onwards when when the war finished and she came back to London from being uh, evacuated down to Wiltshire so she was as much of a cricket fan as my dad was but he he was you know you you, you hear a lot about there are various cliches about what vicars are like and you know some of them love trains and some of them love cricket and my dad loved trains and cricket <laughs> and was quite interested in god as well but yeah but the, the cricket was it was a huge deal um and, and must have and loved I, I cricket training then <laughs> <laughs> yeah well he used to he used to try and skive off evensong 
if there was a John Player League game going on on a Sunday afternoon, or he would not necessarily skive off, but he would find his his curate or one of his you know backup the backup um, junior ministers to to take uh, to take even song, so he wasn't missing the thrilling conclusion of a game at Taunton. But we grew we grew up in a house that watched sport all the time, so it was football on a Saturday afternoon, or you know grandstand, which was our the BBC version of grandstand, which was live, whatever the sport was on that on a Saturday afternoon and match of the day on a Saturday night. And the cricket was something that I just didn't get. I just had no clue about it. And I got quite well into my teens, you know, rebelling against cricket and saying, that's the most boring game in the world. Why are we spending hours watching this? And then thinking, look, it's just ridiculous to try and fight against this because it's, I'm never going to get rid of it. My brothers are into it as well. And I wasn't sporty at school at all. You know, I was... I was hopeless at sport at school, pretty much. But, I mean, they didn't do a great deal to, to inspire people who weren't really into sport and couldn't play it. There was no sort of, oh, well, let's see if she can do a little bit of, you know, dance or, or you know, badminton or something that doesn't involve getting wet or running up and down a muddy hockey pitch. And so, I, so I, I refused to play sport at school, pretty much. But then when my dad started talking to me about cricket and describing it, and he sat so patiently with me, and when I said, what's an over? He would say, right, well, an over is six balls. And I said, well, why are there two bowlers and why are there two batsmen? Why are there two sets of stumps? And so he would run through all of that. And he explained it to me incredibly patiently. And I, I don't know if either of you had a teenage obsession because I went from having no interest in cricket whatsoever to being unbelievably obsessed with it, <laughs> age kind of 14, evangelical 15. Evangelical type. Evan- oh, hugely <laughs> evangelical. And, yeah, and, and the, the, the wisdoms. I mean, I, I had completely forgotten this until I, till I went to a school reunion a few years ago. And this, this woman who I'd been at school with said, she said, yeah, do you know, I, I, remember you, I remember you walking around the playing fields at school carrying this big thick yellow book <laughs> and I, just, I thought oh my god I must have been so boring such a nerd and I did make scrapbooks I cut I cut out cuttings you know so so overseas series particularly I don't know what's happened to the scrapbooks but the, the players of the time so I love Derek Randall you know when you guys talk about the centenary test mm. that brings back so many memories for me because I stayed up all night and listened to that and loved that loved the stories around that so Derek Randall then David Gower and both them. One of my big heroes was Bob Woolmer. And I'm not really sure why exactly, because, you know, you think Randall was this kind of mercurial mm. batsman, a brilliant fielder, impish personality, you know, Gower with his languid stroke play, both them just smashing it all over the place. But maybe you, you two can explain this to me, you know, why I secretly had this this you know this thing about bob Woolmer. I, I don't know what it says about me as a personality yeah deep down. M- maybe it's something we should interrogate on story time at some stage go to the <laughs> yes. bottom of why uh, people are drawn to, to certain players and then i suppose there's the summer of 1976 which is perhaps one of the most mm. well-loved summers for, for a number of reasons not least viv richards but that sort of formative stage of your teenage life and your dad's picked up on this passion of yours and, mm. and suddenly uh, you're consuming a lot of it and you're going along for the first time as well to test matches. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, exactly. What a year to fall in love with cricket because it, I mentioned my, the English heroes, but, you know, Viv Richards and Michael Holding and Andy Roberts and Clive Lloyd and I, I still get a thrill when I'm sitting having breakfast at the Aegeus Bowl like we did last summer with 
with Mikey. Yes. You know, um, <laughs> who was one of my one of the reasons that I fell in love with cricket. But yeah, the following summer, my dad got tickets to go and see um, the Australians at Lords and took me along and got tickets for two successive days actually. So Thursday he took my brother, Friday he took me, and so he wanted to get me a day off school. Wrote to my headmistress and said, Eleanor has expressed the desire to be the first woman cricket correspondent of the Times, <laughs> which, which was a total fabrication. I think he just completely, well, you know, he knew that I loved cricket, but, but, but I think he thought, well, how can, I, how can I sell this to the headmistress of, of quite an academic, quite a stuffy girl's school? But, I mean, credit to her, because she obviously looked at that and thought, well, of course, yes, that is something that a girl should definitely aspire to doing, to whatever she wants to do. And if it's writing about cricket in, in a leading newspaper, then, then of course she should, should aspire to doing that. So, uh, so anyway, so she gave him the day off school. We went along. I think we saw about 40 minutes play in the whole day. And it poured down with rain pretty much, pretty much all day long. But I just have this memory of walking around the ground, you know, sort of underneath the old grandstand at Lords, you know, you know that kind of dark area that you walk around that side of the mm, ground. Mm. So from the pavilion, if you're walking around to the media centre, but then it was all wooden and it was low and it was dark and it was pouring with rain. But seeing some of the Aussie players coming round the other way, and I just and I, I couldn't, but I couldn't tell you who they were now. But I, I, in my mind, it was you know it was Max Walker and it was Dennis Lilly and it was Rick McCosker and it was you know just that that <gasps> that gasp and the, the baggy green caps and the huge green um, V on the on the jumper as well. So and and it just made this huge impression on me. And I think at that point I thought, yeah, if if I can find somebody who will pay me to watch cricket all day then that is a way to spend a life. I often wonder this with a lot of the people we speak to and I think about it with my own experience as well. Have you ever been able to define in any way what it was about cricket that got to you? Because it, it... it seems it gets people, you know. It, it sort of creeps in, and the little tendrils creep in, and they wrap around you. And, and the next thing you know, you're you're all bound up tight. But was is there anything that stands out about you know something about the game or the way it was played or whatever it was that made you be so drawn to it over that period of time? Well, I, I suppose that there was a, a, rom- a romantic image of it, if you like, in, in those days. You know, it was. It was the, the the green the green of the grass, the green of the Aussie caps. You know the white of the of the players playing. You know the the, the aesthetic beauty of of a perfect cover drive or a a fluid bowling action. You know, and I'm thinking about Mikey again here. But I think it's also the intellectual curiosity of it as well. And I think having not known anything about it, you then discover this vast world of facts and knowledge. And I, I have that feeling now, you know, as I say, it's, I mean, after all of these years, there is so much to learn about and so much to know and so many stories to read and the history of it as well. And so I was quite a passionate reader of, of cricket history at that stage as well. And, you know, reading Neville Cardus and John Arlott and books about, you know, the great players of the past. And so, you know, when I listen, when I listen to story time, I love linking back into that and learning new things as well about the game. And actually, the, one of the, the great pleasures for me over the, over the years, so, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this in a minute, but my, my cricket career has been kind of quite lumpy. It's sort of gone up and down over the years. And now I'm back into it and doing it pretty much is the thing I do most of the time now but I feel like I'm I'm learning about the way the game has developed as well so so actually in the 90s and the thousands I was watching as a fan largely and then you get back into how the game has changed and developed in in the last 
10 years or so. And, and I love that learning all the time and learning from other people and learning and I've learned a lot as I say from from listening to you guys as well and that's one of the things that I, I love about about the podcast you know this is not just a complete fangirl about the final word by the way but, you know but it is one of the things that I appreciate and keeps me going on long car journeys no and we appreciate it it means an awful lot to us that you're as I say with us each week especially on the weekend show and that it makes that impression as did David Gower I mean David Gower's debut perhaps gets talked about more than any other modern player, I think, even though he didn't make 100, well, it was 70 odd, didn't he, on, on taboo? But it was the fact that that first ball goes for four, it was the way that he played. And there you are, sitting at Edgbaston that afternoon. Yeah, what a princely entry. It was the Arlet oh, commentary, wasn't it? Because um, it was my it was my birthday. It was my birthday treat to go to Edgbaston. Fantastic. Because that was our closest test ground where we where we lived at the time. And you know, I'd forgotten some of this, but I actually wrote a diary through my teenage years, which of course you did, which is hidden somewhere <laughs> in the house, never to be discovered. But yeah, so so I wrote about going to going to Edgbaston that day, and you know, of course, and, and whatever the overnight score was, I can't remember now. But anyway, but when he he, he comes out to bat, you know, the, the the blonde curls. I mean, you know, Jeff, you asked me why I fallen fell in love with cricket. Mm. You know. I and this, this, there is a reason. There is, there is something that's not very intellectual. It's something quite, quite base about this. But he was, a, he was a beautiful sight to behold. And then Liaka Ali, playing for Pakistan, comes on, bowls his first ball in Test cricket, and he just, I don't know, he just lifts the bat and he pulls it to the boundary for four runs. And you just think, wow, what a way to make, what a way to make his debut mm. on that day. And. Um, yeah, and, and, and then he was a player, actually, who I, he was the first player I interviewed when I went to university. And, you know, and I kind of had the pleasure of getting to know him a bit over the years as well. But, and, and he's a very, yeah, I mean, he's everything you imagine he is. I mean, he, he, he sums up, he, he's lived being David Gower every day of his playing and non-playing career, I would say. And is there also an aspect that with your mum and your dad both being cricket enthusiasts is it something that links you back to them and and helps you sort of keep hold of those memories of of a younger life yeah I think I think it was it was a very pleasurable thing actually all the way through you know as when I became oh I got more involved in cricket you know I think I mean my dad my dad was the sort of person who would never say I'm so proud of what you've done it's it's incredible but of course he was I mean he showed it a lot and one of the great fun things that, that I did a few times, because he was a member of MCC, mm. he joined in 1980, was when we could go to Lords together, you know, and spend time. And then when I started working for TMS, to be able to take him into the TMS commentary box. And he used to love that so much because he used to, he was a terrible name dropper, my dad. So he, he would come and say, well, we saw Ian Botham, didn't we? And we saw Viv Richards and how marvellous was that? And my mum as well, because you know, we, we will, I will phone her up even now. I mean, she's, she's just had her 90th birthday and she's always kept her, her Sky subscription. So she, she watches the cricket and she'll get up early and watch it. And, and it is, it's, yeah, it's, it's a lovely thing to have in common and to feel grateful to them for, for having that passion. But I mean, my brothers as well, you know, who used to play in the garden and occasionally I would, when well, I wouldn't attempt to join in because I, I was very, very well aware of my own shortcomings on that <laughs> front. I think we, we, we had you out playing in the bubble last year, didn't we? Uh, yeah, we did, actually. <laughs> that was probably the first time I picked up a cricket bat in I, you know, however many years. But yeah, a bit of concourse cricket. Well worth it. You know, eye on the ball. Yeah, it's good times. So you're studying modern languages at Cambridge, and but the, but the flame is still burning, isn't it, for sport? And it doesn't take long uh, after you finish at Cambridge to realise that a career in journalism is the one for you. And 
you decide to take an unglamorous job initially, like interning essentially, which gets you straight into a cricket press box. Yeah, well, I, I was I was very fortunate at, actually at Cambridge to work for our, the student newspaper, and so I'd spent pretty much my whole time when I wasn't pretending to work and having fun with my mates at Fenners watching the county because the counties would go to go to play Cambridge University of course yeah as I say David Gower was the first person I interviewed um when he was captain of uh he's playing for Leicestershire just before he became England captain and then yeah went graduated and looked for jobs and couldn't find anything that you know in, in newspapers so having had newspapers you know sports uh, cricket correspondent of the the times that didn't happen because you know, they they said we needed to go and do a postgrad course, and I thought, no, I've had enough. I've had enough of studying. Now I just mm. want to get on with it. So I went to my, went to my local radio station, and the news editor of that local radio station, David Holdsworth, I said to him, I want to cover cricket, and he said, okay, sounds good. You can go to New Road. You can take a phone with you, take a tape recorder with you, and see what you can do. Give us reports every hour, bring us back an interview at the end of the day, and um, and just get on with it. And so this was the mid eighties. And there were no women really doing sports journalism or broadcasting in those days at all. So he had a, he had a great, well, I don't know, I don't know, open-mindedness, but he he just thought, no, if she wants to do it, let's give her, give her the chance to do it. So I'm incredibly grateful to him for that because I think there were probably plenty of women around in those days who, who didn't have those opportunities. So that was, um, yeah, that was, that was amazing to suddenly be up New Road in Worcester covering county cricket and, you know, Benson and Hedges trophy games. And um, it was just amazing. I mean, it was, it was kind of daunting, but I think I had enough sense that I knew what I was talking about and that I had a right to be there for it not to, not to scare me off. Did it terrify the blokes who were in there? Were they sort of about to drop dead on the floor because, you know, a lady had come in here with, you know, they, they, you know yes. that their uteruses explode when they go into cricket grounds. You know, they, you can be hit by the shrapnel and suddenly everybody is pregnant. I think that's how it works. You know, it must have been very frightening for them. Yeah, I think it probably was. Yes, there's this, there's this very small 25-year-old blonde woman, 23-year-old actually, I was even younger than that, sitting there in an open press box. So it, it probably, I think it's probably still the case now at county grounds, BBC local radio stations have their own sort of hermetically sealed commentary boxes and any other, but I mean, actually things, things have changed. I and mean, this is an indication of how things have changed in, in media in this country, that you used to get commercial local radio stations who would have a news budget and be, would send people to do sport. And that just doesn't happen now. It's, they're all kind of part of one huge conglomerate or a number of huge conglomerates. So I didn't have a commentary box to seal me from the rest of the press box. So, you know, so for example, you know, Worcestershire against Nottinghamshire and all the, the guys would be sitting there, you know, bent over their typewriters with their phones plugged in. And I would go along and plug my phone in and they would give me this look of oh my goodness me there's appears to be a lady in the commentary box <laughs> um and and then i would have to sit there and do my report on the hour every hour and the whole place would just completely fall silent like a live audience inside like though. a live audience <laughs> but but made up of 50 year old blokes probably hoping that you'd stumble Com- well, maybe not hoping, but well, just kind of just this thinking perverse sort of interest as yeah. to whether you'd stuff it up. Yeah, yeah, thinking this this is as, as as you say, you know, the the possession of breasts and knowledge about cricket are completely mutually exclusive. How has she got into <laughs> so the this, commentary this box? Short. She must have come in when the window is open and she can't find her way out. <laughs> help her out, somebody. Get a broom. Just help her out. <laughs> 
I, you, you, appear, you appear to have lost your way, my dear. I think you should be in the ladies' pavilion at Worcester making teas. Um, I, I love the fact that, Ellie, in your house, which where we're sitting at the moment, your house is covered in cricket memorabilia. It's fantastic, all the books and wisdoms. And we're stacking, Jeff, you can't see it from your angle, but our cameras are stacked on a few wisdoms, as often it is the case at my house. And I brought down some Playfairs as well, and there's the Playfair cricket annual from 1985 mm. which um, yeah. which you've got here which might actually be the first season you're that at was, that was I think my, the first season at Worcester so that's got, it's got Paul Downton on the front uh, keeping <laughs> wicket in a white fluffy hat um, and, and actually I I've, I was thinking, if, if the guys say to me, so who do you remember seeing in those early seasons at Worcestershire? And I'd be thinking, was it Glenn Turner? Final word favourite, Glenn Turner. Uh, but I can tell you with some uh, confidence that um, we, we had people like, uh, hang on, uh, Tim Curtis um, was uh, opening batsman, I think, or did he go in number three? Uh, Graham Hick. Oh, of course, yeah, early days. In those days as well. Yeah. So, so, yeah, made, made his debut for Worcester in 1984, in fact, which was the year I graduated. We had people like John Inchmore. I don't know if you remember him. He was a Worcestershire favourite, so I remember him. He was, a, he was a big fast bowler with a impressive moustache. Um, Phil, N- Phil Neal, who's the, the yeah. England uh, team manager now, who, who I still say hello to when, when we're uh, covering England games and that kind of fondness that we were both relatively uh, young. How old is he? Yeah, he's considerably older than me, few. I like um, the idea of the muscle memory too, by the way. You picked up that book, Jeff. Ellie's got the book in her hand and immediately knew where to thumb to without <laughs> even a second yeah. guess in that I know, 1985 it's an, an instinctive thing. But I did used to buy, buy a play for every year, for years actually, just because it's an incredibly useful little... In the, sure. day, in the days before... It, children, in the days before yeah. the internet, <laughs> we needed to have things printed on paper God. and look them up. So, but, but, I mean, going back to that first day, that first few uh, outings at Worcester, and I do remember after... After probably the second the second day I was there, so every hour press box falls silent. I do my report, put the phone down, get my head down again, think, shit, I hope I didn't cock up here. And the guy sitting next to me turned to me and said, "You do know what you're talking about, don't you?" And I said, "Yeah, I think I do actually." <laughs> so, with this this air of complete surprise. Do you know how to spell <laughs> condescension? <laughs> <laughs> I imagine you do. You're very intelligent. Um, yeah, I, I love this idea of people just walking around. You're all carrying a phone with you. Like I, I'm assuming a sort of rotary Ooh. handset that you just carry around with you everywhere and plug it into a, <laughs> a phone jack. Where I you think that sort of Bakelite ones with the, with the things that you dial the numbers. Uh, no, I think it was. I think it actually had buttons wow. on it. But you know, you, but but yeah, you plugged it. But yeah, at, at press boxes, uh, uh, you know, for cricket, for football, for all sorts of um, sports until very recently you know you would hire a phone socket from the club or from the ground and you'd have a, a portable handset and you just go and plug it into the phone socket and that's yeah so that's that's what I that's what I did in those days but I couldn't drive so I, I used to cycle down there as well so I used to put my um my <laughs> my tape recorder it was a, a thing called a ewer which is a, a reel-to-reel tape oh. recorder um and I know, I know, I know, and and it used to. It was incredibly yeah. heavy. So for a long time, I, I walked with a stoop on one side because the weight of this thing used to weigh me down everywhere. But yeah, you'd go and you'd, you'd record your interview on that, and then you'd take it back and you'd take the 
reel-to-reel tapes off and you'd stick them on a tape recorder and then you'd edit it with razor blades and china graph pencils and little bits of sticky tape so fantastic i know different world very different world very different world and, and i expect the newsroom was as well so you go on a relatively familiar path from one local radio station to another mm-hmm. and suddenly you're sort of doing big time news and working on newsbeat in the late 80s and early 90s so yeah you get that sort of hard edge journalistic training in addition to having i suppose fulfilled in the first instance that mm. that interest to cover sport yeah i suppose you could say I've, i fulfilled my lifelong ambition less than 10 years after i formulated it which is <laughs> not by going really so it was all going to be downhill from there but yeah i did i did worcester for a couple of years and then i, I went and worked in bbc local radio so my first job in bbc local radio was at um, radio shropshire which was minor counties so i had a blissful couple of summers actually i wrote about it for wisdom yeah. cricket monthly um driving around the driving around the county going to you know beautiful grounds with with just a handful of fans on deck chairs and and reporting back from the radio car and occasionally getting to drive to places like Colwyn Bay I think I think you said Adam recently you want to go to Colwyn Bay for a game can't wait it's it's not happening this summer unfortunately they're they're, they're playing that fixture in Cardiff but but he talks about Colwyn Bay on every episode literally every episode only because because this nearly happened (laughs) only because we identified it a couple of years ago as one we you know we'd go to with Rach and bring Winnie with us yeah Oh, it's a special the, place. The yeah. light there is—I just remember—the light is so beautiful. So blue skies and seaside, and the and the and the houses just beyond the boundary. It's just fantastic. And Weymouth as well, which is another seaside uh-huh. cricket ground in Dorset. But then, yeah, then then I got a job working for for Newsbeat on Radio One. Um, which is the news program for for the for the for the younger listeners? But that was an extraordinary time to be in, to work in news, actually, because end of the eighties. So we had things like you know the the collapse of communism, mm. you know the Berlin Wall coming down, the collapse of Romania, you know Ceausescu mm. being executed on Christmas Day, um, then terrible disasters. So you know Lockerbie disaster, the plane crash in Scotland, uh, the Hillsborough disaster as well happened on a day that i was working so that was again a saturday afternoon when i was supposed to be doing reporting on sport but ended up reporting on this horrendous tragedy and something which really hit home for me as well because i watched a lot of football in those days i used to go to watch arsenal every saturday afternoon with my then boyfriend and um just that feeling of horror that something like this could happen at a sports ground and then it was a really interesting time to do news but we also did we also rather incongruously did pop interviews as well so so the bands who were in the charts at the time used to come in to be interviewed by us so um so i don't think i interviewed bros but i certainly interviewed salt and pepper oh you um, what okay. <laughs> i never knew this about, I, uh, this is this is tremendous news i mean i you know i trust you've seen my jacket i have yeah. seen the jacket i have seen the jacket so so yep yeah. so so I, I i kind of dropped that in there in the expectation that you'd be deeply impressed and i'm pleased with that reaction (laughs) my my respect is by a factor of i don't know seven it's just increased that's that's very Mm. precise and and also one of my other memorable pop interviews at the time was chesney hawks oh how about that The different ways your lives intersect wow. with our lives. I know, so I know. It's so perfect, isn't it? He came on, it came on the radio mm-hmm. the other day, Jeff. Uh, um, it came on Radio 2, which Rach was listening to at the time, yeah. and I, I tried to explain to our friends why it was relevant, and I pulled out of the story. I'm like, how am I going to explain to non-cricket friends why <laughs> Chesney Hawks the one and only? I'm like, you know what? It doesn't matter. 
And it doesn't matter that we now know um, the son of the midwife who delivered yep. Chesney Hawks. That, that doesn't matter no. either. But if we could put together the Chesney Hawks uh, adjacent dinner party where we have the midwife who delivered him, Ali who did the interview, Rachel who used to see him going <laughs> yes. into the milk bar and buying whatever it was yes. to buy. You know, and the, the more people who have, like, the, the more tangential the link, the better, you know. If you were on a bus... At some point Chesney we're going to have to get him on, on the show, I'd imagine. <laughs> I was going to say, I bet he's not doing he's a great deal these days. I'm sure you could probably get him on if you asked him. No, I mean, maybe a few kind of late 80s revival tours. I remember he was very, very nice. Not all the pop stars in those days were nice. Some of them were complete twats to be absolutely fair i was wondering what adjectives you were going to I know, use I was trying you're to quite <laughs> polite usually although i have heard you say some pretty serious swear words too um, yeah. after a glass or two but uh, yeah, I, I like it you went with twats yeah. there yes yes so that's, that's kind of mild enough for a, a vicar's daughter and a national icon of broadcasting or whatever bollocks is. Anyway, national treasure is the word uh, isn't it national treasure yeah um so so but you know he was he was very he was he was great he was very nice chesney i've always remembered that and um, and and uh, there is something um yeah, very who, who touching. The Every time I hear him, is in the context of being a dusty old uh, bastard. The, 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 who played at the Berlin Wall? Somebody, um, David Hasselhoff. Yeah, yeah. he did. Yeah. So, so if yeah. you could have combined Freedom. the two, you know, covered the fall of the Berlin Wall and an interview with the Hoff at the same time, that would have been good broadcast. <laughs> It, w- it would. Actually, my co-presenter on Weekend Breakfast, uh, Chris Warburton, has done a program with David Hasselhoff, mm-hmm. and occasionally he'll say to me, "Have I to- have I told you about have I told you about that program I did with the Hoff?" And I'll say. Yes, you have. <laughs> it's I know all about you and the Hoff. <laughs> it must be how it must be how Jeff, our friends, think about us when talking about the people we get on the show. <laughs> fair enough, too. I just want to press fast forward a little bit to where you return to sport. Mm. So there's this cricket thread that goes mm. through your life, but there's also an Olympics thread. Eleven Olympic games you've covered mm. from '92 onwards, both summer and, and winter, all the way through. Maybe you told me a story last year over breakfast about being. Was it the first person to to snaffle Linford Christie or the or, or the Linford yeah. Christie story when he wins the hundred at Barcelona, That's which right. is your first Olympic Games? That's right. Yeah, um, I, I should we should let Jeff know that we're actually drinking out of Olympic mugs at the moment. We are. Yes, um, I've got. What have I got here? I've got Pyeongchang. You got Pyeongchang. I've got Sochi. Mm-hmm. Um, so Winter Olympics. So it's it's um yeah. So up to date, it's seven summer and four Winter Olympics. Amazing. that I've done. So ninety two was the first one. And yeah, the Linford Christie story. So we won the hundred meters final. Um, it was, I mean, was it the the dirtiest competition in the history of? I think the one four years earlier might have it covered. Exactly. The eighty eight one. The eighty eight one was pretty on bad. On the juice. But, but, Everybody's but, 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 on the juice. The Arthur Conningham <laughs> yeah. hundred meters. <laughs> a lot of a lot of good <laughs> ideas going around. <laughs> um, but yeah, but Lin, but Linford, you know, clean as a whistle. Nineteen ninety two wins the 100 metres and it's it's that sense that it is the, the it's the moment that the whole world is watching one sporting event yep. you know that's less than 10 seconds long and I was I was in the International Broadcast Centre that evening just doing the, the bulletin so in 1992 I didn't I didn't cover a particular sport exclusively I just did updates I just got sent out to cover random sports mm. that they didn't have a specialist reporter on but on that particular night I was I was doing the evening bulletins and Linford came in to do the rounds. So, so the final happens, and I'm sitting there in the studio waiting to do an update, and I can just remember at that point that he crosses the line, leaping out of my chair, chair going backwards, scripts flying everywhere. But then he's, he comes around, he's brought in to do all the different broadcast, you know, the UK broadcasters. And so he is suddenly sitting opposite me, like, you know, like you are now, Adam, and, and, and I get to interview the most famous man on the planet at that moment. And it was just... 
amazing. You know, you just think, wow, how lucky am I to be part of this sporting history? And it's amazing eight years later as well in Sydney when Aaron's, what, five months old and you go straight out to cover uh, the 2000 Olympics with a baby in tow and you somehow find a, a way to make it work and it's it's left an indelible mark on you as a person, that, that trip to Australia. It has, yeah. yeah. My, so my eldest was born at the beginning of 2000, Aaron. Um, and, and actually I then spent the following summer covering cricket and I'll, you know, we'll talk about that in a second. That was just... <laughs> bonkers you know traveling the country doing a full summer of cricket when you've got a baby under a year old was a bit mad wow but we took um so i, I really felt when you, when you were taking winnie out to australia adam i just really felt for you because we took we took aaron out to to sydney for the olympics and actually the bbc were amazing you know they said we really want you to work on the olympics and um nick my my then husband was also working on the olympics because he's because he's a broadcaster too and so they said, look, you know, there's there's room for you. We'll make sure that we can make it work domestically and maybe we could you get a nanny out there or something like that. Or And in the end, um, Nick's mum came with us and stayed in the apartment that we were in because we had a two-bedroom apartment. We were only, between us, only using one bedroom. Mm. Um, and we paid for her flights. And it was just the most magical experience because I love the Olympics. I mean, the, you know, apart from cricket, the Olympics is the thing which has defined my career, I think. And being able to to have her there and then she went on little outings with her grandma and went to Taronga Zoo and went to the Manly Aquarium and went on boat trips across the harbour and, you know, while I was doing programmes and, you know, covering judo and whatever else I was doing and um I can't, and Nick was commentating on hockey I think so right. so and we'd then we'd then kind of come together in the evening and um and I, I remember one day because you the Olympics is brilliant but utterly knackering so the days are ridiculously long and coming back in the evening to our little apartment I can't, can't remember where it was somewhere near Parramatta but anyway coming back to the apartment in the evening having not eaten and my my mother-in-law saying you look really tired and if you had any food and me saying no and she said I'll make you an omelette and and I said oh that's, that sounds like the best thing that anybody has said all day and she's looked after the baby all day and I've managed to work and Nick's managed to work and it was it was the most I've got such fond memories and, and of course Sydney was epic because the Australians love sport like no one else in the world apart from the Brits greatest so, games ever obviously Sydney <laughs> until 12 years later but yeah <laughs> no I would say it was it was one of my most enjoyable games by by a long way and I did I, I did programs I did programs sitting on this the steps of of the the opera house and I'd never been to Australia before and I'd always wanted to go to Australia I've always had this this kind of romantic thing about going to Australia and maybe it was to do with the cricket and my love of cricket and the history of it but but also that feeling of you know actually being very similar in lots of ways you know the brits and the australians are quite similar in in ways and massively different in other ways but i was so so happy to be in australia and and to be in sydney as well and that was yeah the first time i'd ever been this is where your timeline gets quite interesting so 2000 is the first year you work on test match special it's Mm. also the year that donna simmons commentates on tms which means that Two women two, are on the two, program. Two, two women of on them. Test Match Special. If they get too <laughs> close to one another, the, they'll the definitely <laughs> explode. That's how it happens. <laughs> for the first time. I mean, the idea yeah. that you're, you're juggling a newborn mm. straight back to work. While doing interviews on the boundary. Oh, my Lord, she's going to start breastfeeding in a moment. That's what happens. You and let one Olympics in and then, and then there's another one. <laughs> <laughs> And within a year, I mean, you're then juggling two kids under two. I mean, it's it's quite a it's a crazy little period of your life where you are. I mean, we talk about 
blazing a trail. I mean, you blazed that trail on TMS first, along with Donna, to be part of the cast for the first time, their boundary side day in, day out, with two young babies. That must have been just a hair-raising part of your life, this amazing professional opportunity to do the sport you loved most alongside this period of life where you had to invest so much in family. Yeah, and I think, I think this is... I mean, it's a challenge for women in every profession, really, is that actually at the point where you reach your professional peak in lots of ways can often be the point where you're having having babies if you're going to have babies that's the time when you do it so so to get to to juggle the two was was a real was a real challenge and you know as i said erin was born in in january 2000 and tms decided that year or peter baxter made the decision that they wanted to make the team a bit more diverse bring more women on board so um so i was given the job of being the the roving reporter so you know doing interviews at the start of the day or in the intervals uh, coming up with ideas for you know rain delays and so on and donna came over from the caribbean to commentate um alongside tony cozier and it was and and viv was working on that that series as well i mean oh god i was in heaven that that summer but it was amazing and it felt it did feel like an ambition absolutely fulfilled but it was a challenge because I didn't want to miss a single thing I didn't want to miss a game so it meant that I missed out on quite a lot of errands for summer actually so she was left at home with with Nick or with grandparents who who came and stayed and looked after her and um, it was hard work it was really hard work and you know and there were things that I kind of felt like I, I did miss out on that and then, you know, bang, go to Sydney, so happy in Sydney that I go and get pregnant again. Um, <laughs> the Olympic like, spirit I'd came like, over you. <laughs> I'd like to make the point again that my husband <laughs> at the time was also on the trip. So, <laughs> <laughs> so there isn't some, so what, so not, you know, there isn't some kind of random um, meeting in a bar in Sydney, which... No, it wasn't some in, Cuban long jumper or no, something like that. <laughs> it was not, no. G'day, Sheila. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so so within within seventeen months, I've got two kids, and then you know, so so that was hard. But so two thousand and one, I missed that whole summer. So Ash's summer, I missed that completely because it would have been too that would have been ridiculous to try and do you know two children under you know under seventeen months old to try and do do that whole summer, and then then you know a few years after that, it was it was hard work, but it was it was great. I mean honestly, because you know, I wanted to I just wanted to carry on working as much as possible, and I also wanted to keep my my own professional life as well because even though you, when you become a mum it's a, or a parent it's a massively special thing and it changes you in ways that you can't even begin to imagine but at the same time I didn't want to forget that actually I was I had put in a lot of hard yards mm. becoming a broadcaster and establishing my career by that stage so it was um yeah I made it I made it work I made it work with a lot of help from parents grandparents childminders and and the bbc being actually pretty good about helping me do that the the position that a lot of mothers find themselves in and talk about is being sort of having their identity washed away you know you become a mother and that's it you're now that that's your entire function and who you were professionally or otherwise before that ceases to matter to people on the outside of that were you conscious of avoiding that before having the kids or was it something that you had to kind of adjust to on the fly it's a good, it's a good question I mean I, I think I always the, the the difference is that my professional name I mean Eleanor Oldroyd is my name though you know it's the name I was born with it's my, my my father's name my mother's name but my married name even though I never used my married name is it was Mullins so the girls have that surname so actually when I when they were at school 
so I had I had I led a double life in a way actually when they were little so I would take them to school and I would be you know the Mullins girls mother even though I and, and at work I was still Eleanor Oldroyd mm. and some people knew I and you know people knew I had kids obviously I was very very careful not to make it not to make motherhood a problem for anybody so I was determined not to ever take a day off and cite the kids as the, as the reason why or not to take an unscheduled day off so I can remember in in all of the the years because at that, the time when the girls were small I was doing a lot of football on a Saturday afternoon so and I think there was only one Saturday afternoon where I had to phone up and say look I'm really sorry the child mind has let me down I can't go to Millwall this afternoon and that I think is the only time I I did it, but I was, but we were, the thing about sport actually is that it does make it easier to be able to organise your life so that you more or less know, I mean, until the last 12 months, you more or less know exactly when sporting events are going to be. So you can say the Olympics is going to be between, you know, the 3rd, 8th of August, 2008 to whatever it is, two weeks later. Um, and the reason I remember that, 8808, was because eight is the lucky number in Chinese oh, that's right. numerology. Yeah. Yeah. So they wanted the opening ceremony to be on the 8th of, of August. Anyway, so a little kind of nerd pledgy style <laughs> factoid for you. So I could, I could organise my... I, was, I became quite good at organising my, my family life and my professional life. But I think I was almost... I, mean, I overcompensated in some ways, I think, for being a mum by trying hardly ever to mention it and, and to, you know, to, to press on with it as much as I possibly could. Yeah, and I suppose tangentially to that, it's that we hear stories about that era, and you've spoken mm. freely about that era being mm. just laden with with, uh, with with sexuality, but also sort of the the. We've already touched on the idea that women were were not seen as appropriate people to convey sport, but then there's an extra layer in the workplace as well, which mm. you've talked about historically. That it, you know, with you presenting such high profile events, whether it's Formula One Grand Prix or tennis majors, Olympic Games, cricket, TMS, all the rest of it, that you've said before that you needed to be two and a half times as good just to get to that benchmark in order to not cop uh, highly sexualised uh, criticism and abuse. Uh, it's before the social media age, I suppose, yeah. but it didn't make it any less venomous. Yeah, yeah. so it's interesting, two and a half... I, I mean, I kind of pick, up, pick a random number from the air when I, I say that. I think, I think again, this, this, goes, this goes back to, to women in all professions having to try quite a lot harder to to be accepted and and I think it, you know the question of my employers they've always been great you know I've, n- I've been given opportunities when you might think that that they wouldn't have done so so you know 1992 being the first woman to present major sports programs on national radio and then being the first woman to present sports report which is the people who don't know it, is the the big program the kind of historic five till six hour on a Saturday afternoon yeah. where they, it starts with the classified football results and it was the sort of the, the record of the day on a Saturday afternoon. So I was the first woman to do that. So I had all of those opportunities and I think what you say about there being no social media in those days is absolutely crucial because I think if there had been, I would have been destroyed because, you know, you look at the tone of comments to women on social media now who dare to express an opinion about sport or even work in sport and it's still 
horrendously toxic. And you just imagine how much worse that would have been 25 years ago, actually, in terms of the number of people who actually really did believe that that women, I mean, however much we joke about it, who did believe that women were physiologically or psychologically or knowledge-wise incapable, or just didn't want women women in in an area that, that they felt was theirs... But in those days, you know, if you wanted to, if you wanted to tell me that I should get back in the kitchen and stop talking about football, you had to go and get a piece of paper and a pen and write a letter and find an envelope and a stamp <laughs> and, a, and, a, and work out what the address is and go to the post box. A higher barrier yeah. to abuse. It was a high. It, the, 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 yes, <laughs> the, the many, abuse barrier was an awful. Many lot people still cleared. You know, many many telegraph reading blokes still found the time oh, and yeah. found the energy. I remember one of those comments coming up in a piece a few years ago from a letter, and I think it was. I think it said, "Oh well, when there's a man presenting the woman's hour, then you can have women doing the sport." You know, as though every <laughs> know, other fucking hour on the radio isn't for men. <laughs> They're like, no, no, no. We need that well, one. Quite, the yes. one. The one for we give us that hour and then you can come in, you know. Yeah. Well I think I think the one thing and, and the thing that I've loved about radio is that which has given me so many opportunities is that there seemed to be this positive thing that, you know, the more the more women the better. You know, the more the merrier. Whereas in TV in, in those days, sort of certainly in the kind of mid to late nineties and early two thousands, if you had a woman presenting you only needed one woman. You didn't need another woman. No, we've got one of those already. We don't need another one. Mm. Um, we, uh, what will happen to all the men who need opportunities to be able to do this? And I suppose the right, kind of, women the right kind of woman too, right? So it was like, well, it needs to be a woman that, that sounds a certain way. I mean, mm. Ali Mitch, when she mm. spoke to us last year, talked about the way that your, your voices are critiqued. Mm. Even now, the nonsense on, you know, whenever you're hearing a, a woman commentating cricket, it wouldn't be the first thing you would see in the replies on Twitter, but it might be the third most prevalent thing is is the tone of a woman's voice i mean you you had to reconcile that uh, in addition to your day job yeah well it's it's one of the reasons why i've I've never done much commentary really in my radio career you know and apart from royal funerals and bits actually on tv so i've done synchronized swimming commentary and judo commentary (laughs) i've done very little cricket commentary which bearing in mind the hours i've spent watching cricket and i think it's because in in the you know in those days so the, uh, say mid nineties and, and the point well until Ali became established really and it's one of the reasons that I have such admiration for her and think she's such an awesome person is that at that time people really thought women were incapable of commentating without becoming massively overexcited and suddenly becoming all squeaky and probably talking about tampons you know and, <laughs> and so, so therefore they should not be they should not be allowed to commentate and so I I thought. Actually, that's a risk too far. You know, they'll accept me doing match reports, they'll accept me presenting programmes, but I'm not going to push it any further. You know, stay in your lane, love. Don't attempt commentary. That's really interesting. I mean, if you had have been coming through with Ali's generation of broadcaster, you almost certainly would have been a ball-by-ball commentator or other sports that you were turning your hand to, but you still feel as though that that was one thing you, you couldn't, do at that particular time when you were forging your way through yeah i think i think this goes back to the the, you know being having to be two and a half times better that jeff mentioned it's that that feeling that if you make a mistake if 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 either of you guys makes a mistake on commentary then people will say ah you got that wrong you know that wasn't a you know that wasn't his slider that was his you know whatever else but if a woman makes that kind of mistake i think then and probably even now They'll say, well, that's what happens when you get women, women to commentate on cricket. She, clearly, women can't possibly... You know, so if you make one mistake as a woman, then your whole sex yep. is ruled out as a, 
as as you know having any right or ability to commentate on on cricket or, or anything like that so so it was I, I think and, and by the time I might have you know when Ali became established and, and women started doing it more often I think I thought right well why would I take the risk you know why would I damage where I am which is actually quite quite nice I quite like my mm. career as it is by trying to do that and so you know I have become more risk averse but actually now I feel more confident to do it you know, and I think my knowledge of the game is is better. But I think you do have to have an exceptional knowledge of the game to be a cricket commentator, whether it's as an ex-professional or as a journalist. You know, and I don't hold with you have to have played the game to be able to be a cricket commentator because clearly, you know, that would have ruled me out decades ago. But I, I do think you have to have you have to be pretty much beyond reproach when it comes to getting things technically right and describing what you're seeing. But then I never gave myself the chance to do that, so it's probably too late to go back. Is that a regret that you didn't get the chance to do that? Uh, well, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. But then I, you know, I just think of the things that I have had the chance to do in in the years since, and I don't. And actually, I'm not quite sure how I would have fitted it in, really. So, so, so no. <laughs> it's it's. I mean, I some I sometimes wish I sometimes wish I could have done. But actually, we had we had a moment, didn't we, Adam, last summer when we were together at Old, Old Trafford, oh, do you did, remember? Yeah, that we, we fantastic the, ODI, uh, we, where Maxie <laughs> went mad and, 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 you know, and Australia got home. And, and I just remember at the end thinking, oh, I'm going to leave it to the professional to do this last bit. You know, so we were kind of co-commentating we, we the, uh, a bit, weren't yeah, we? Yeah, the last over, wasn't it? That's Mitchell right. Stark came in at the end with yeah. around 10 to get after Maxwell got out. And That's right. That was a nice uh, That was a nice. It was moment, nice. So, I, I, really, yeah. I really like being on the radio with you. But, but actually I thought, I'm not even going to attempt this because I'm going to make myself look like a bit of a it so so <laughs> Adam over to you well you obviously had had plenty going on as you say enough time to win the, the major broadcasting gong with the SJA a couple of times um through that 2000s period where you were dipping in and out of cricket but doing so many other things and then we reached 2017 when you joined the road with us mm. on that Ashes series in 17 18 and what a delightful few weeks it was when we had you uh, in Australia but I love the idea, and you've mentioned this before, of coming full circle, the cathedral, that new road there, which you um, started your career in the mid-80s and then the the cathedral, Adelaide Oval, where we had that fantastic week. Really good test match until the final um, afternoon when Australia blew it out of the water. But until then, a nice push and pull. And you were finally able to make it to Australia for an Ashes series. Absolutely. I, I think, um, yeah, it's all about cathedrals. It's all about Gothic architecture and, <laughs> you know, and, and choirs and stuff. Um, I actually managed to get away with writing a piece of The Night Watchman this year about, about my, my theories about uh, choirs and cricket and how they're basically <laughs> the same thing. But anyway, won't go down that route. But no, it was, I, I, just, I just remember, you know, you know when somebody tells you something amazing and you can't, you, you think, I will always remember where I am at this moment. And I was going through the revolving doors at Media City in Salford, um, leaving our work where Five Live Sport are based. And our editor was coming the other way. And he said, oh, Ellie, hang on, I just want to have a word with you. And so I stopped and he said, um, how do you feel about going to the Ashes? And so this was September 2017. And I just thought, oh, my God, you just asked me the question. I have waited my whole life to be asked. <laughs> um, and he said, uh, he said we, we'd really like you to do Melbourne and Sydney. And I thought, oh, shit, because it would have meant, you know, missing Christmas, going out, going out for Christmas. Erin's 18th birthday was January 2000, uh, January um, 2018. I was due to do the Commonwealth Games. I thought, I can't be away for all of that stuff, you know, because actually in the end, I'm, they still need me. I mean, you know, they're 18 and 16, but they still need me. Um, and then, then 
I said, I, t- I don't know whether I can. He said, well, how about if we said Brisbane and Adelaide instead? And I just thought, yes. <laughs> so, so yeah, so, I, so I, I flew out to Australia. I've never been so happy in my life, I don't think, as shopping and preparing for that trip. And then being there, I got the worst cold in the world those first few days at, at the Gabba. So to the point where I couldn't actually speak for several hours on day two <laughs> and and henry moran our, our lovely friend henry uh, took over from me and did all the the five live updates overnight but i but one of the one of my best memories actually of that trip was on the the just before the first day at the gabba and doing kind of a half hour program sort of building up to the first ball being bowled with mel farrell and the two of us sitting there in the box at the gabba just chatting cricket between the two of us for, for a half hour and i thought shit, they've got two blonde women talking about cricket for half an hour ahead of the ashes. This, we've come quite a long way, haven't we? Um, and um, and so, so that, was, that was an amazing, amazing trip. And yeah, as you say, it was, yeah, I mean, it was, it was kind of up for grabs for a very, very brief moment going into the final day at, at Adelaide. And I remember sitting having breakfast. We did a programme over breakfast, uh, which, which you, you came on, didn't you? Yeah, you come on yeah, that morning. You were there. You were there. Yeah, yeah I've, got a, I've got a picture of, of you and Mel and Henry with the worst hangover in the world, I think. <laughs> um, doing, I uh, know, no, he was sober. That he was, no, he was fine that day. But doing, a, doing the programme and, and then Paul Farbrace coming and wandering right. over, yep. do you remember? Yeah, I think we had... Um uh, I want to say, did Joe Root swing by at one point? We tried to collar him on the way through. I think so. Yeah, yeah I think it, so. It was one of those mo- one of those days when anything was possible. Absolutely, in the end, it, they were blown out of the water. But yeah, yeah. Just that, but that just just of that hope brief for, moment. For English listeners who were who were tuning in, thinking they could pull even in the ashes. I know, and it was it was brilliant. And then and then I flew back after Adelaide, so they they split it. They, they split the five live yep. reporting role, and Jonathan Overend came in from for Melbourne and Sydney. But I I, I was I remember packing my case in tears because I just so didn't want to go home at that mm. point, you know, and and um, thinking, sod the kids, what am I doing going home? <laughs> Forget Christmas. Erin, you're just going to have to celebrate your 18th birthday on your own. I'm going to stay here. Do not send me home. It's funny thinking about the, the various uh, women broadcasters that we've had on this program over the last three or four years or whatever it's been, and the extent to which they review you, so whether it's Ali, Isha, Ebony, Izzy, Mel. I mean, you're seen as such a, uh, a an important figure in all of their careers as well. Do you sense that now that uh, you remain such a source of inspiration to a whole generation of women who probably wouldn't have received the opportunities they had in, in quite the same way, um, if not for what you were doing 20 or so years ago? I mean, it's really lovely to hear. And, and um, yeah, it, it feels sort of slightly surreal you saying that because it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's not what I've aimed to do particularly because I've done it for my own selfish reasons because I wanted to create my own career and, and, and love and love what I do. But you do remember the people who help you at the start of your career, I think. And I, I always remember one of the one of the great moments for me was when I was at, at university and writing to Christopher Martin Jenkins, who was the editor of The Cricketer at the time, and saying that, you know, what I wanted to do. And he said, well, why don't you come down and visit me at The Cricketer and I'll show you around and maybe we can have a chat about some features that you might be able to write for me and me thinking oh my god you know this most important man I mean he was of course he was he was at the peak of his career at the cricketer and test match special and and just before he became telegraph cricket correspondent as well and then BBC cricket correspondent but the fact that he paid me attention and was as nice as you could ever imagine because he was the nicest man the most disorganized man but the nicest man in cricket 
it's always made me think actually if you it's, it's a very powerful thing to help people and to be there for them and just to spend a little bit of time saying a few encouraging things but also to be able to see what people have done before you and for me so, so you know in those days in the, in the mid 80s there was no there was no role models really and certainly in broadcasting from a female point of view there was a writer called julie Welsh. she wrote for the observer on football but she was the only female byline that you ever really saw writing about sport in those days so I, I'm, I'm thrilled. I mean, I'm really thrilled. And I, and I think it might be accidental as much as anything that I've kind of gone out of my way to do. And, but I love the idea that these awesome, I mean, Isha and Ebbs and, and Ali and Izzy and, and Mel, you know, are my, I, I mean, I love, I love my girls, mm. you know. I, I love my boys as well. But, but it just feels a wonderful thing to be able to have, have done and, and to help, you know, help even if it's been inadvertent. Well, we talk about um, trailblazers a lot in sport. And I often find that, people don't understand the metaphors and aphorisms that they use in sports writing and sports coverage. They just use them automatically. But So to explain it, if, if people don't actually know, the blaze, the blaze is the bit that you chop out of a tree in order to leave a mark. And so the trailblazer is the person who goes first and cuts marks in the trees so that those who come after them can see where they're supposed to go. And uh, in this context, that's you. That's what you've done. You're actually the trailblazer for everybody else. Well, uh, thank you for saying that. It's very, very nice, very nice to hear. But yeah, it, it, there has to be somebody, as you say, who makes the first cut. And and I suppose you know it was it was me in lots of ways. Interesting as well that you've tapped into a, a part of the cricket. I was going to say counterculture it might not be the right term exactly, but like you, you're the queen of tailenders. I mean, I've been to those live shows when you're sitting in the balcony. Uh, in the royal box, isn't it, uh, there? Uh, and, again, the audience who, some of whom are, are cricket people, but a lot of people have found um, cricket via tailenders and, uh, and thus have, have uh, grown and grown warm to the game in the last few years. But your importance in, in their world, I mean, that's kind of fascinating as well, that whilst you are a conventional broadcaster, come through the conventional way and, and work on radio, that there's this online community who, who love you as well and, and see you as their queen. It's kind of cool. <laughs> I mean, that equally feels massively surreal. And, and we went to the, the live show, didn't we, at Hackney yeah, Empire, yeah. which was the, the first one, so, so end of 2019. And actually, I took, I took Erin along. So, you know, I mean, my, my other daughter, Rosie, who is, you know, my little ray of Australian sunshine, I always think, is <laughs> where she was made. But Erin is re- actually really quite into her cricket, but that's partly through Tailenders and because of Greg James, you know, so, so Greg James who presents the Radio 1 Breakfast program and she loves Greg. So she, she started listening to Tailenders and has actually developed quite an interesting cricket as a result of that. So I took her along to the Hackney Empire and at the start, you know, they did this, they, they did a kind of intro and I'd recorded an intro for them and then Greg said, you know, Queen of Tailenders, Ellie Oldroyd <laughs> and pointed to the balcony and the whole bloody hackney empire stood up and applauded <laughs> and i was thinking this i'm sorry i'm sorry no this is just stupid now come on this is ridiculous and erin was looking at me going what you know this is this is my mum so I, I don't, i'm not quite sure whether she was embarrassed or proud or a, a mixture of both but um but it it's and, and i suppose and again part of that is the accident of the fact that i've been doing radio for quite a long time yeah. <laughs> and and people who who will have listened to me on radio one are probably now in their their kind of 30s and 40s and yeah so i've, I've been i've been around in people's lives for a long time so so i'm I, there's there's an accident of ubiquity probably in all of that as well as anything else but it's very very nice and and i i love i love tailenders boys as well as you i have a final question ellie if you are the queen of tailenders 
then who is going to do the live reports from your funeral? <laughs> well, I'm demanding you, Jeff. Of course, <laughs> if you want to put, if you want to make a pitch now for it, then of course I will put in a good word for you. The, the procession through the streets of London will narrate it from start to end. I think you'd strike the tone perfectly, <laughs> Ellie. Uh, you've been such a supportive uh, friend and colleague to Jeff and I, uh, and to so many people in the industry, and beyond that as well. It feels like I mean, you do so much around my life personally. I mean, I love the fact that when winning's old enough she'll go to Lords with you and I think that's just an amazing that thing well. um, thank you for taking the time to spend so long with us today I can't wait to go to lunch with you now and um, have another long conversation and, and keep doing what we're doing uh, it's been great to have you on the final word well it's been an absolute pleasure as I said I, I, I love the podcast and, um, and thank you both and uh, Jeff we'll raise a glass for you in your absence and hopefully we'll manage to do it in person at some point hope so hi I'm Isha Gua and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin. It's the final word, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, as we prepare to say goodbye for another week. Well, not a full week, really. We'll have the, the story time edition coming out on Saturday, as is the custom with yes. a weekend show. And we're ever so mm-hmm. grateful for Ellie uh, making it possible to talk to her today. She's a very busy woman, but as you would have uh, gleaned from that interview, uh, someone we're very fond of and it's... Uh, yeah, to spend as long as we did talking through her amazing story is something that I think we're both grateful for and I reckon we'll, we'll go down as our, one of our most enjoyable interviews. I think it – I'm trying to remember a comment. It may have been Graham Swan, you know, who's, who's, who's not always everybody's cup of tea uh, broadcasting, but off air at one point in, in 2019, he said something along the lines of, uh, there's something about hearing Ali Aldroyd. When you hear her voice, you just feel like everything's going to be all right. And that's kind of how it feels. That's how it felt for that last hour or so, just uh, just listening to that conversation. It just felt like maybe, maybe, maybe things, I mean, I know things are bad and I know things are, they're always bad in a lot of places a lot of the time, but they're also okay in some other places some of the time. And, and maybe there's just that feeling that in some way, to some extent, at some point, things are going to be okay. Nice positive uh, note to leave it on, Jeff. Thank you to everybody who's contributed uh, to the patron page at different points. We, we tend to have a bit of volatility around the patron page at the start of a month, but it also is the catalyst for new people uh, signing that dotted line and hitting that button at the bottom of the screen. Thank you to everybody who's done that. Uh, thank you to Zolio and thank you to Seabus Super who've been extraordinary supporters of uh, The Final Word over such a long period of time. To everybody who reviews and rates us too, um, I mean, yeah, it goes without saying that that makes a difference. So if you've never jumped on that iTunes page, if, you, if you've listened to the Ellie interview and thought that was worthwhile, I liked what they did there. More people mm. should listen to these two youngsters. We can't really call <laughs> ourselves youngsters anymore, it must be said. It's only that just in the specific industry that we work in, we still happen to be like exactly. generally probably the youngest two in the room. But in any other, yeah, if, if, you know, if we were athletes, we'd be veterans or stalwarts or yes um, we're older than almost every single players that we, that we talk that about we write or write about. about but yes yeah but that's by, why we like darren stevens so much <laughs> <laughs> yes he'll keep us young but by by cl- clicking that review button you can help more people listen to the show and it makes well, helps make the, the world go around as does the patron page thank you again to ellie thanks for listening everybody uh, and yes again we said this last week but to our friends in india um who are watching on on youtube especially let's hope that the next week's better than the one that's gone before it and the one that went before that our thoughts are with you. This has been the final word. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, and we will talk again uh, through the course of the week. So you know what I meant here. I had to go about it.